Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. It's another Friday bonus episode because, eh, it's a long weekend. And my guest for this one is Peter Sarsgaard, an actor and producer with a filmography that runs from Kimberly Pierce's Boys Don't Cry and Billy Ray's Shattered Glass, through Lona Scherfig's Uneducation and Kelly Reichardt's Night Moves. He was in Errol Morris's Wormwood, and he'll be in Matt Reeves' The Batman. He works with a lot of great people, is my point. Right now, you can see him playing debauched journalist Walter Durante in Agnieszka Holland's Mr. Jones, freshly released on digital and on demand. Peter picked Knights of Kiberia, Federico Fellini's 1957 look at life in post-war Italy, starring the filmmaker's wife, Giulietta Messina, as his heroine, a sex worker living on the outskirts of Rome who endures one trauma after another, some big, some small, with endless positivity and optimism. That's the plot, and it may not sound like much, but what Fellini and Messina do within the space they create for themselves is truly remarkable, and I couldn't have asked for a better person to discuss it. This is someone else's movie. I haven't seen every Fellini movie, but I saw quite a few of them because I had this Italian Jesuit uh, teacher in high school who had a class after school. His name was Father Garorelli. Okay. And he showed all Italian cinema on VHS. And that's when I first saw the movie. And he also, you know, like showed more scandalous ones like the Dolce Vita and stuff. But something about Giulietta Messina that, you know, there's really not many actors like her. You can't really figure out what she's doing because it's so emotionally <laughs> available and real. And she's got this performative thing going on simultaneously. Yeah, it's um, it's a performance I, I mean, I remember the performance more than I remember the movie. Re- rewatching it last night, I, I was surprised at the order of sequences because I had thought of it as more of a straight line. Yeah. But it's I remember episodic. her so vividly. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember thinking when I first saw it, because it starts with her getting pushed into the water. Yeah, yeah. And then when you get to the end, in my mind, you've still got the memory of that. And you're thinking, is he going to put, like, is it going to be bookended? I assume, yeah, the first time. (laughs) And uh, when I was watching it again just um, now, to talk to you and I was watching it with my children actually and translating, you know, my, my youngest, it was going by too fast for her to read. So I was like reading it and it got to be toward the end and my wife had not seen it, neither of my kids. And everyone kind of looked at me and went, is it going to be okay? Like (laughs) get appropriate. And I was like, I was like, I don't, I know the ending because the ending is unforgettable. It's probably like, one of my favorite endings of any movie. The way she looks into the camera. Yeah, it's it's breathtaking. It's that thing that everyone, uh, how can I put this? A lot of filmmakers think they can pull that moment off and a handful, you know, Deplechand does it in a, in a Christmas story or a Christmas yeah. story. Um, maybe once or twice I've seen it work as well, but it's just so, it's so shattering. Uh, and we'll obviously jump around. It's also because Fellini is on the other side of that camera. I mean, not literally holding the camera, but that relationship is so strong. Yeah, yeah. And she's so comfortable that I think a lot of actors, whenever I've had to look into camera, it's very nerve wracking to look into the camera. 
Well, you're I mean, trying not, not to do it, right? Your entire career is about not addressing. Trying not to do it. Your eyes don't want to do it. And you're also looking at a reflection of yourself frequently in the lens. Oh, yeah. And um, it's, it's, un it's deeply uncomfortable. And she looks so comfortable. Yeah. And so, and I think it's a really nice, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it is like, for the times we live in right now, the end of that movie is basically like, she has nothing, just absolutely nothing. And it's all gonna be okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and you're like, because we have music and each other and art and, yeah. and all of the, intangible things and that big wad of cash is gone and all of that whoring that got her that cash it's gone too and where is she now someplace new yeah it's such a it's such a moving and and heavily i mean i'm trying to articulate it i don't have the the um the Catholic background personally mm -hmm. for, for what goes on uh, throughout the film, but yeah. it is you know, like, it's very clearly a redemption story, but at the very end of it, it's not that she has anything to be redeemed for. That's, that's what strikes me as, as so powerful is that she's just happy. She's just, yeah. it, it, she's not absolved because I don't think she sees herself as a sinner. She's, no. she, she carries her own behavior and like whoring probably is the wrong word. Um, no, it's, it's the like, one they use in the film. They throw it around. It is. It, so. it is. But it's also like she's she's quite innocent for what you imagine um, someone involved in the sex trade would be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like and quite like easygoing about it. And it's not very Catholic, actually. Not very self-flagellating at all. No, not to her. But then there's the. I mean, the whole thing about the man with the sack was the scene, the seven-minute scene that was deleted after the initial screenings at Cannes yeah. because the Catholic Church apparently I mean, they never confirmed it, but Fellini always believed that the Catholic Church objected to the idea that they themselves, the church, wasn't taking care of people. So this man with the sack had to wander around giving out charity. Yeah. Um, Fellini's argument is that that is an active Catholic person doing the thing that the church should be doing. And that guy's so random. When he first appeared, yeah. I remember I was like, this guy's like from another movie. <laughs> he just like walks in, you're like, and he goes to the people in the caves and everything. And you're like, and actually I've been to a part of Italy. Oh, where is it? That has caves like okay. that. And so I, I, I always imagine these very specific caves. And um, yeah, who is he? Is he like, some kind of Santa Claus or something. <laughs> um, the film doesn't know what to do with him either, right? It's uh, when you when you say he's wandered in or he's he's from another movie. I Kiberia is herself from another movie. I, the the you know the Fellini cinematic universe that extends through all of the other ones, and yeah, uh, it is possible that he has a movie that we just haven't seen. That he's living an existence that we're just not privy to. I think that's right. I mean, it's it's like a little coda. Thing or not a coda in the middle. It's mm -hmm. like a little parenthetical part. Um, and actually when Maggie was watching it, she was like, oh, this movie quite clearly has like sections, like the section with the famous actor guy. Yeah, and yeah. Then, um, you know, that section and, um, but yeah, I, and I love the part in the church. I mean, for me, because, 
the fervor of the extras around her, none of whom you know, is so full on and so believable and so real. And she's still Chaplin-esque. Yes. You know what I mean? But around her is reality. And what's cool about that is like, and Fellini does this in some of his other movies too, is like, that idea that we have now post Marlon Brando and all those people's of acting being a certain thing where it's like very realistic and um, very as you are kind of thing um, method or whatever. Um, He's got like that reality, which is more intense than most reality that you see in that church scene, like in any movie that I'm in. And then she's still doing her like, you know, little, a monologue in her head that you can fully read that's kind of acted out through those huge eyes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it felt to me, um, the first time I saw it, I, I think the first time I saw it would have been when the restoration played in 35 mil and it came to mm-hmm. Toronto. And so 20 years ago, easily 98, 99, whenever that was. And it felt to me like it was trying, it was Fellini trying to be near realist. I remember thinking, cause I'd just been exposed to Rossellini's films and yeah. I thought, Oh, this came out of that. And this time through, it feels like Fellini's arguing with Rossellini, that he's saying that you can have this sort of commedia dell'arte scope and scale in a realistic depiction. He clearly, like, he didn't have the money to build a, a world around her the way he does in Amarcord or, or in um, Satyricon or the later films. I actually just saw Amarcord also. I'm, see, for me, I would rather have something that was more like this. Yeah, I kind yeah. of I'm I'm inclined to agree. I like oh. his fantasies. I like his his um his dream films, but it's just so much more interesting to see how he regards the real world or how he functions within the real world and how he inserts Kiberia, who is yeah um she's uh, I think it was Ebert who said she or either Ebert or Zep- Stephanie Zakarik said that she has a voice like a foghorn in the presence of a, uh, of a silent movie character. And that's a contradiction. That's just something that shouldn't work. Yeah. And, and you just can't not track her. You watch her, follow her through everything. Crowd scenes, I'm always looking for her and she's a little short. She's a little, the eyebrows make her stand out. The eyebrows, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I know that, I know that there are relationships like this, creative relationships between filmmakers and, and actors, but this is one of those things where Fellini, he clearly wants to show us what she can do and showcase her because he knows her so well and she trusts him. And so you get this. And no one else would have seen it like he saw it, you know, like part of me, I was watching it and I was like, who do we have that is sort of like Giulietta Messina? I was, I can think of, (laughs) I'm trying to think of anyone that really can kind of, because she has such a massive heart. It's so swollen with feeling. And I mean, for my money, as good as Chaplin at any of that sort of playful shit, like the way she takes the, the chicken to comfort herself. <laughs> she like her house in the middle of nowhere. This like this odd thing that's like out of a Custerica movie, you know, like pops out of the house, upset, goes out, pulls out the chicken, sits on the front step for a second with the chicken, goes back in. <laughs> what is going on <laughs> and um so playful and wonderful i mean i i would love it for me it inspires me as an actor because um so much of what we do now is like uh really just searching for some sort of um ecstatic realism 
you know, sort of thing, like sure. real, but in a kind of ecstatic operatic space because everyone's attention span, nobody can handle like, uh, you know, uh, the big movies are not gonna have like long Cassavetti sequences of people playing games in living rooms, hanging out, being as they were, drinking scotch. Um, sure. So it's all very compressed, but everybody's taste is for what is recognizable and, and quote unquote real. And I, I do miss as an actor being asked to more mix things up like that, you know, because I think I could do it. Maybe, you know, I'm not like Julieta Messina, but, you know, I would at least like the chance. <laughs> yeah, it feels like there is a, an opportunity. I've been watching some of the things that are being produced in isolation now. There's a, an ITV series called Isolation Stories, which is basically actors shooting themselves in their own homes uh, as char in character performing and with their families holding cameras in some cases. Uh, Eddie Marsan and his two sons are, are in one together playing a family that isn't theirs. Um, the, the two Glenisters who aren't Philip, father and son, are in that, are in another one. And it feels like there is this possibility happening right now where people don't know what the rules are again. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can go bigger or maybe you can go smaller or sideways and reinvent your own skill set because literally no one is telling you not to do it. It's just yeah. the possibilities are endless. And Absolutely. I, I'm really curious all of a sudden to see what comes out of this because maybe we will get a new stream. Maggie and I made one. It's going to be on Netflix in a couple of weeks. What? No one tells me anything. Yeah. Uh, it's called Penelope. Maggie wrote it and directed it. And I star in it. It's okay. only me. And um, a friend of ours who had had coronavirus in February, who has antibodies, came up and, you know, we did social distancing, but he did have the antibodies. He shot it. And my children did like props and, you know, everything else. And uh, it's, I'm extremely proud of it. It's, it's like, I mean, it's one of the better things I've ever done. <laughs> so um, then it is, it is got both. It, it's humor. It, there's humor in it. And it's also got a heart. Yeah. It, it's something different. But there so, you go. This is the trust that you get from working with someone, you know, as well as anyone can know another person. And she's about to direct me in a movie that we're doing um, in uh, the late summer um, with uh, Olivia Coleman and myself and Dakota Fanning and Jesse Buckley. Oh, well, none of those people are, you know. <laughs> and that's based off of uh, an Atlanta Ferrante novel called The Lost oh. Letter. And uh, you're shooting that in, in New York or? Um, no, it's it, it, it's between two places right now, and I don't want to jinx it, but we're we're not shooting it in the United States. Okay, no, of course, Ferrante would be Europe. Yeah, yeah. Um, but okay, if I can just ask, is it safe? Are you are you comfortable with that with working? Well, the... it, it's it's safer than I think. What's going to be interesting is it's going to be a very small crew that are going to quarantine together. Okay, like. First go up and you have to do, I mean, this is where it gets expensive. You go, it's gonna be filmed in a different country that has a quarantine policy. So we'll go there and all quarantine separately for 14 days. You're paying for hotels for 14 days. Sure, yeah. Then you go together as a pod and you've all done the 14 days. Now you go together as a pod and you stay together for the shoot and we shoot six day weeks and we shoot it in four weeks. 
And um, I think, I'm kind of hoping that it'll be artistic magic because everything I've ever done that way, starting with like Boys Don't Cry, we shot like, Boys Don't Cry was basically shot like quarantine style. We all lived in and like this, we took over this housing complex on the next to a freeway in Dallas. We all ate, slept, lived, hung out there. They would go to set together, film, come back. So, I mean, I don't know how big movies are gonna be done. I think there'll be a lot of like people coming at different times and all of that. But in terms of little movies, and this one's not like super little, but it's pretty little. I think it's gonna be like, we have to create isolation, creating that isolation. I used to always say like filming on location is a gift. We miss our families, but we are an artistic family. So, and, and there's no like going back, oh, I need to get back to my whatever. It's like for this amount of time, for a short period of time, it's just us. And I think that that's what, the way it's going to have to be. Yeah. I mean, you're basically building a talent incubator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm really thrilled to do it. Um, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, it's between two countries right now one of whom has a more strict policy and one of whom has a more liberal policy. And go with the strict I, one. I think you go with the strict one. Yeah, you absolutely go with the strict one. Yeah. Uh, wow. I, and it is, it's, everybody has been saying in the last few months that they've been watching television and, and movies and, and freaking out when people get too close or go to bars or go to restaurants. That hasn't bothered me um, just because I've, I disconnect to the artifice every time and I just start thinking about how things are made. But right. watching Knights of Kiberia, just to bring it back to that um, for a second, that made me think about the freedom of just wandering around a space and shooting yeah. what you find. Because although everything is, you know, everything is scripted and rehearsed and carefully um, staged and set, it looks like a documentary. It looks like Fellini oh just God. wandered around with this person. Oh yeah, and the coverage sometimes. I love the coverage of the two of them walking through the woods toward the end. Yeah. And, and she knows, we know, he knows, everyone knows. Like there's, there's no doubt about what's at stake. Yes. And he yeah. doesn't really go in. It's just, there's, they're moving freely in a pretty wide frame. We know their thoughts. We don't need to get like, you know, like super close to see what he's feeling. You, the way he's walking, the way he walks in front of her, the way she trails along behind him. I mean, it's just, uh, I, I think there's so much freedom in a Fellini frame. I also love the way he shoots night where it's like, you know, it's, it's not that complicated. He just yeah. like, there's one bright light over here, maybe another one over here, and he just blasts it in some shadows and you can go in and out, but like this idea that shooting night has to be so complicated or look real, you know, like everyone goes like, how do you shoot moonlight? I mean, this is, you know, obviously not in color, so, but like, how do you shoot, how do you shoot nighttime? No, you just turn on a bright light, <laughs> you, you go, I mean, to me, you just throw on a big light. I, I, I get so tired of everybody trying to make it look a certain way. We actually shot near, it was, this was shot partly at night, what Maggie and I just shot. 
and we um, we were talking about it, and I was just like, if it's really night and there wouldn't be a light, let's just let it be dark and you don't see much. Because I, these sort of like balloons that we all send up and this bullshit that we make out of shooting night, I just was really inspired by the way he did it. It just seemed like I'm not going to spend all my time lighting this thing. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's more important to capture the the life than. Think of where the prostitutes hang out at night in front of that big building. Yeah, I just assume the street lights up against that's the fine. building. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It look and you don't and you don't question it, and there's no reason to. There's, um, there's just this contract that we have with a film that looks like this that everything will be accounted for. That you know, if if the if the reality is in front of us, of course that's where the light is. Yeah, I also want to talk about with this movie something I think is so wild, is like she's our romantic lead. I mean, yeah. this little woman that he loves so much, and you can tell he loves, and they died within, I think, four months of each other. It was close, yeah. Right, like, you can sense that whatever complications they actually had, that there was real connection there, and it's really palpable. And yet, the lovemaking scene, she's in, she's in the closet or bathroom. Bathroom. Yeah, she's she's removed from from it, and it's like the that whole thing in that long wandering walk she does out, and um, and I love that she's playing a person who's involved in prostitution, and we never see her do any of it. No, she never works. There's never, never even. Do it. There's sort I, of a like an attempt at negotiation once or twice, and it's just half-hearted, as though she doesn't really like. It's not important to no, her. It's not no, about no. the money. I mean, it's so okay that like my kids could watch it. My my eight year old watched it, and she didn't. It wasn't important. Yeah. I mean, she didn't know what she did for a living. Honestly, she did just she, thought. Did yeah. it play? Did it play for her? Did she like it? She wept. I mean, everyone. Oh. We, that movie, and and everyone was so tense. I think part of what makes it so, you know, the movie wanders around and is episodic in some ways. That that final bit or counting, showing the money on the thing, and you can't even, and she's like left it back at the, and you're like, oh my God, she's left it at the table? This little trusting angel has left it at the table? Now she's going for a long walk in the woods, and now they're at a cliffside, and my kids were just freaking out. <laughs> and then the release of, of what happens after that with, you know, she has nothing and all those kids come around her and the music and she looks at us and I mean, I get chills. I honestly think that this movie for this time where so many people, I'm not one of them. I, I actually feel like an incredibly fortunate person during this time. Like I have, um, I'm able to do some version of my work. Um, you know, it's not, what I would hope it would be, but it's something I write sure. also. So I'm able to write. Um, I get to spend time with my kids. I'm financially able to weather it. Um, but I look around and I see so much despair. And I just think like this movie goes to the bottom of absolute despair and then shows you what really matters. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, I, I could weep. Yeah. I, I, just yeah. yeah, you watch the world build itself up around her. It's it's you know, she trades one. Capitalism. 
Yeah, fuck that. Don't worry. <laughs> it's, just, it's just your life savings. Yeah. That's all it is. Let it go. Yeah. She has more life. She'll... You have yeah. more than that. The world decided that was important. You've lost your home, your life savings. You've left your community. You're in the middle of nowhere. You don't know any of these people. <laughs> You've got no place to sleep tonight. You've got no food. You've got no, not a coin in your pocket. And, and, and it's, everything's going to be all right. Yeah. You know, I, I love it. I do too. And I, I, in the, uh, in the booklet, in the Criterion disc, there's an excerpt from Fellini's autobiography where he talks about Kabiria and ultimately decides that um, she's the character he worries the most about. He thinks about her after the film is over and mostly he doesn't do that with his characters. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's because it's Messina and someone who would just occasionally spur him to think about it just because she looks like Kabiria and she, there she is. Uh, or whether or not it's the one ending that is almost too happy for him. Mm-hmm. I, like some part of me wonders if he didn't pick at it because it's so satisfying. Because I he doesn't trust I, I, Yeah, the ending to me, I mean, like I said, I've not seen every Fellini movie, but I've seen a lot of Fellini movies that the ending doesn't remind me of any of his other endings. I mean, no. it's, it's uh, deeply satisfying for me to, as a viewer. I wonder why he didn't use her more. So far as I know, he used her three times, La Strada, and then I haven't seen the one where she was older. Um, there's one more. Oh, right, right, right. Um, I can't remember the name of. Um, oh, he man, did one with her when she was older. And I, I think like, I, God, I would have put her in every single movie I ever made. <laughs> you know? And did, did, I don't even know that much about her in terms of her career outside of Fellini movies, you know? Uh, I think she worked fairly frequently and how I doubt, how I I doubt myself. Other movies. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, not as, I'm not nearly as well-versed on Italian cinema as I should be, so. My, my entire knowledge of Italian cinema comes from Father Garrelli, who was like a really um, interesting guy. He really lured me and couple of other kids. I, I was the one who really went to all of the screenings after school. Um, but a couple of other kids did too. And he lured us in with like, I mean, really, frankly, like sex. Like, you know, the Italian cinema just had like, even if it wasn't like naked bodies, had sexuality and a kind of sexuality that seemed way more exotic and interesting than the stuff that was around me. I was in like, you know, Connecticut. <laughs> okay, sure. There's an, there's an earthiness to the Italian cinema of the year that you can't really get in Connecticut. Yeah, and I was Catholic, and I, so I was like, oh, this is like a wonderful version of what it could mean to be a Catholic. Yeah. Like, you know, you can, it, the great thing about being a Catholic is like, you can commit the crime, you just have to serve the time. Right. You know, like, you can be absolved of anything. You can do anything. And if you genuinely ask for forgiveness, you're good. And it really, um, I always leaned on that heavily. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great loophole. Uh, yeah. Well, before we, uh, before we get called for time, because it's about yeah. to happen, um, it's kind of an odd question, given that we're, we're talking about uh, this in conjunction with Mr. Jones, but is there anything in uh, Knights of Kiberia that you have um, 
pulled out or used or leaned upon or, or incorporated into your own work, either in that film or anywhere else? No, I think I hope to. I think, I think what it is, is it's like, um, it takes a lot of bravery to venture into the territory that they head into there. Um, what I'm frequently asked to do um, doesn't have as much a performative aspect to it. I mean, in Mr. Jones, I am playing a guy with one leg who, you know, was an apologist for Stalin who had sex parties and smoked opium, but like, it's, he, um, what we were looking for and what serves the movie is for me to try to really think about who Walter Durante was, not add in the eight-year-old Peter, who's a performer. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the first performing I ever did in my life was juggling in front of people. You know, like I never started, before I started acting, you know, when I was like, um, in my second half of my sophomore year in college was the first time I ever tried it. Um, I was like somebody who would be like, you know, I played soccer, but I did it to like perform in front of people. That was like sort of, I wanted to, to have a style and look at and entertain people or I would juggle or I would tell jokes or I do magic tricks or, you know, like um, that's the element that is in this movie and in her performance of being like, you always know she's a performer. Mm -hmm. The eyebrows tell you she's a performer, she's a clown. And um, I would love a, a crack at doing that. Well, we have time, you know. Yeah, well, I have Penelope. I, and Penelope isn't exactly like that, the thing that I do with Maggie, but it's, it's maybe like a little, you know, a message to the world that I'm capable of more. Oh, I can't wait to see it. And yeah, uh, yeah and thank you so much for your time. This was great. I'm so glad we got yeah, to Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Stay uh, well. You too. And uh, yeah, uh, plan well on this thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, ciao. Yeah. My thanks to Peter Sarsgaard, whose new movie, Mr. Jones, directed by Agnieszka Holland, friend of the show, is now available on digital and on demand. And you should definitely check out that short film he made with Maggie Gyllenhaal, which went up in Netflix's homemade collection earlier this week. Thanks also to Angie Power. She knows what she did. You can find Peter on Twitter at Peter Sarsgaard, all one word. And while Knights of Kiberia just went off the Criterion channel and the DVD is out of print, I'm hoping that means Criterion has a Blu-ray restoration in the works. Until then, you can find it on iTunes. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days as well as writing about movies. Go take a look. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or you like the show in general, say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network, too. Stay inside. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you again on Tuesday.